I'm back, baby. The FCC didn't ban me after episode one, so I guess that means we get to keep on doing this. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Highway. This week, we have Mr. Matt Bayless, record producer extraordinaire. He's produced records from bands like Botch, Isis, Mastodon, even The Sword. We had a great conversation this week. If you like what you hear on The Highway, go ahead and follow where you can follow. Subscribe where you can subscribe. And if you want to go a little bit above and beyond and help support us, you can find us on Patreon at The Highway with Kyle Shutt. Shout out to Bob Bechtall, Mike Young, Bob Mavity, our only three patrons. I, I-, I love you three guys so much. I'm going to shout you out on every episode. Just try and stop me. Be sure to sign up for that Patreon if you want early access to next week's episode, which is up right now. This podcast is still in the grassroots phase, and that means there's no ads to listen to, and no sponsors to hear from, and to tell you the truth, I like that just fine, because that means I get to do things my way. The Highway. Hey, what's up, buddy? Hey, man. How you living? Uh, I am living okay. I'm in beautiful, uh, what used to be known as Austin, Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you refer to it as it, now? It's not, Seattle it's South? It's not the same. Seattle South. Uh, New Austin, <laughs> I like to call it. Uh, yeah, it's a, it is a different landscape for sure. But uh, uh, everybody, welcome Matt Bayless to the show, producer extraordinaire, uh, one of my favorite audio engineers. Um, he's certainly unique in that respect. And um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to, to pick your brain about different things. Uh, with this podcast, I like to talk to every, every aspect of the music industry from people that work at labels or touring musicians or uh and, and you're the first one up uh from the audio engineering world uh oh, in, okay. a, in a segment that i like to call the studio uh <laughs> but yeah um for people that don't know matt bayless produced the swords third album warp riders he was the first actual producer that we worked with that we spent a significant amount of money on uh, uh, relative to us at the time uh, in 2010, well, and uh, it's, it was—it's a fortune in today's world. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, my goodness, uh, I don't even want to talk about the current state of things. But uh, oh, b- back when music—I'm sure, we'll, sure we'll circle around to it at some moment. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, I guess just go ahead and tell people a little bit about yourself and your background. And I know you came from the hardcore scene and uh, ended up in Seattle, but that—that uh, that was way back in the 90s, and uh, I, I'm sure people would love to hear about uh, the climate back then. Gosh. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, I started out in music as a late eighties, Connecticut straight edge kid. I put out a record that I didn't record. I had no recording expertise at that point, but I formed a label and released a record in 89. Uh, and you know, music was just important to me from a very young age. I'm not, I wasn't, I didn't start learning an instrument until I was 16. So I was kind of late to that. And I'm, it's not really my, my, optimal skill set or whatever but uh you know and then I, I i lived in dc for a couple years for college and then moved to tennessee when i wanted to get into recording and when i was in tennessee i fell in with the kids that would become his hero was gone and tragedy and that whole crew the crusty punk scene that i was sort of associated with there and then i finished school and moved to seattle and um got an internship at what at the time was bad animals uh and you know was getting food for the post-production rooms and wishing I was in the music rooms because they had three of each. And uh, post is just, it was just voiceovers for ads in the music rooms at the time. I mean, when I got there, I think within a couple weeks, Deftones came in to do Adrenaline. Um, Dang. Pearl Jam came in to do Mirrorball. 
with Neil Young. So that was Brendan O'Brien and Terry Date, two, you know, Godhead producers. Um, you know, I spent a few months there being uppity and obnoxious and, you know, East Coast and sort of forced, <laughs> forced my way into circumstances. And, uh, you know, I was a runner on the last or on uh, the, the Tripod Alice and Shane's record for a few months, um, which just meant getting food and alcohol and hanging out and waiting for somebody to tell me to go get something. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> Ed Brooks, who was an engineer at the time who now does mastering, uh, I had assisted him a little bit and he got hired to go to Studio Litho, which is Stone from Pearl Jam Studio. And he uh, needed an assistant because at the time the studio was a finished space but had no console had a tape machine and two racks of outboard gear and we needed to record Neil Young and Pearl Jam rehearsals, <clears throat> excuse me, and record a song for a compilation. And, and, you know, I had wired studios before and Ed, uh, knew that I wouldn't screw it up. And so we, he hired me to assist and I, you know, we ran mic cables into the tape machine from on the floor. I mean, and we had to do another vocal track. I had to go behind the tape machine and move it over because the console hadn't arrived yet. And, uh, that, that got crazy. me out of the. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, I mean it was. It's you know yeah. I mean we had a Mackie mixer, and we had rented a whole bunch of. We had rented an EBCM10, which is a fancy ten-channel vintage sidecar. Um, so we had a lot of great front end, but the mixing was done on a Mackie thirty-two by eight. Um, and uh, you know, and, and then so I became sort of the house engineer at, at, at Litho's assistant, whatever. And I'd wired studios, like I said, so I was responsible for finishing a lot of the wiring, audio wiring, and. Um, you know, was was the assistant there for a few years, and so that enabled me to work with Terry Date on Around the Fur, and uh, you know, Brendan on No Code and Yield, Chad Blake on Binaural. Um, you know, as far as me assisting and watching these, you know, really substantial, established, successful producers do their thing. Um, so I got to really sponge up a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, and and on during downtime, I was doing local bands, so that was you know, Blood Brothers and Botch and all these these bands that sort of helped me cut my teeth on actually running the show. Uh, was that in the same spot? Did you, did you do all those local bands in the same space? Yeah, I did that. I did those at Litho. Um, I mean, recording at least, uh, mixing. I tended to go, I think at that point to Avast, which, uh, if I recall, but I mean, I'd have to go to check the credits on some of these. I probably did mix some of them at Litho. Litho in, in September of that year, their API showed up and, and it was a modded, custom i mean it was a vintage one that had been updated so it was a beautiful sounding console but you know i grew up with automation when i was in college so i wanted to and this was all recorded to tape this is 1995 well you know late 90s pro tools wasn't ubiquitous at that point so you know tape and so automation helped you do stuff that you might you know you might need to do that you couldn't pull off uh the way you do these days with with you know daws so um yeah, so but most of it was tracked at Litho. It was a big twenty-five foot ceiling room. Uh, you know, it was just it had a nice live sound to it. Um, it's it's been kind of uh, renovated and it's a little deader now, which at times bums me out. But it's still a great sounding room and amazing gear. But I wish the room was a little splashier the way it was when we first started. But um, but yeah, so you know, and I, again, I fell in with the, the Seattle hardcore scene pretty few, shortly, pretty soon after arriving. I went to a show. March 2nd of 1995 that was sick of it all orange nine millimeter corn playing second damn and and uh a band called headline which was a local straight edge band or whatever and I 
They were called. With, they were called headline. <laughs> yeah, they were. Um, and so, and then uh, I think that was the name. I mean, I didn't know. I became friends with them, but I, at the time, I didn't know who they were. Yeah. Um, and I met a lot of people who became really close friends of mine. The guys from Undertow, the guys who would go on to be in, you know, Ryan Fredrickson, who was in These Arms Are Snakes, um, and now in Dustmoth. You know, I just, I mean, I made a lot of friends there, and that falling into that, the local Northwest hardcore scene helped me find projects to do. You know, to record. Um, and, that, that's uh, awesome, man. Yeah, I first uh, found out about you uh, from Celestial, the ISIS record. Sure. Which I thought was just, it stood out, I mean, heads and tails above anything else that was out at the time, musically and production wise. You know, it was, uh, so was, was that your first, I guess, kind of post botch? Because I remember botch, but I didn't necessarily um, associate you with that record at the time. Um, sure. Was, was it botch, do you think, that like kind of got your foot in the door with all those other kind of like hardcore bands that eventually led Yeah, that I mean, because, yeah, I mean, botch was on Hydrahead. And, you know, I, without that cross country association, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't become known to the Northeast, um, metal, hardcore, whatever you want to call it scene. Um, so yeah, I mean that, yeah, the, the botch record, you know, Romans, I mean, Nervoso started it, but that was kind of the band finding their footing as like they grew musically and also me finding my footing as an engineer. I mean, that record was recorded. Nervosa was recorded in three days, I think. Damn. Yeah. Um, all the great and, ones were. And then, all, all your and favorite then albums into, out there, yeah, were like recorded with like the crappiest gear and like on a, yeah, a shoestring budget and like a, a yeah. total time crunch. That's what I love about most debut records. Yeah. And then we did Romans and Romans, I think we spent about two weeks on. Um, but Romans just kind of, they, you know, they really did something special and I had gotten better and was able to capture it and not sort of uh i don't know i was able to 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 uh step up to there where they had set the bar musically or whatever so um but yeah so so romans really started it romans got me celestial romans and celestial got me you know burned by the sun and mastodon um you know so yeah i mean that's kind of the arc but it all yeah i mean the, the you know point point a is is we are the Romans by botch for sure. That's awesome, man. You know, and, and another question I wanted to ask you was going to audio engineering school. Mm-hmm. What, just just because I'm curious, because I I never went to any sort of formal uh, educational establishment. Uh, sure. What do you? Not so much what do you learn, but what what do you take away from a formal sound engineering education versus someone who becomes a home recording savant? Well, I mean, there's. Uh, I can I'll speak uh, I'll speak specifically to what it offered me first. I mean I don't think there's anything wrong with becoming a home I'm not, recording. Yeah, I'm not, I I'm not saying. No, I mean I think there's there's a lot of freedom that I think there's a lot of freedom that comes from it. Um, but for me, I was still college for me was a chance to go make mistakes without consequence. Totally. Uh, and a lot of those mistakes are are mistakes of slightly intense northeast personality. And, <laughs> being an asshole and and realizing I was an asshole feeling bad about being an asshole but not worrying about what somebody and because I was outside Nashville like I didn't care what Nashville thought of me and I mean Nashville's obviously a huge scene nobody knew who the hell I was my point is I didn't I needed to learn how to you know be a little more diplomatic and and be all these things and and it was a good place to learn because if I blew it there if I bummed somebody out, I knew it wasn't someplace I was going to stay. Um, totally. And, and there was different moments where, I mean, I got raked over the coals as an intern for some of the dumbest shit. 
Um, but there was also times where I was, you know, not, I mean, I wasn't inappropriate, but I was, you know, less appropriate. So, so speaking specifically from, you know, I needed, I needed time to mature. Like I needed to grow up. Mm -hmm. And so college, you know, finishing college for me was a chance to grow up more, you know, mentally as opposed to the rest of it. In terms of what I learned technologically, I mean, it gave me the means to learn, you know, you, you get the foundations right. You can go into any room and you're like, oh, it's a split console. It's an inline console. And you can, uh, you know, you can know what the hell is happening because it's the same as some other brand, even if they use different words or different implementations. You know, but again, when you're dealing with, when I learned, I mean, you're dealing with consoles and tape machines and, and you know, nowadays, you know, guys, you know, people at home don't need to think about tape machine alignment or how hard they're hitting the tape or, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables there, but there, there's actually far less because you're, you know, you might have an outboard mic preamp or your interface might have built-in mic preamps. And so you're not really, uh, you're not, you're not, you just, you know, you learn how to learn new stuff basically. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if, and learning, like learning how to align tape machines was something that they actually didn't even teach you in school because they didn't want you to screw them up. But, um, by going in there and doing them in the, in the school studios, but you know, there's a lot of depth to, to analog recording that maybe at the risk of sounding like an old fart, uh, isn't necessarily there technologically in, in DAW. Land. No, totally. Uh, I, I a hundred percent agree. Um, uh, which is why the sword, if, if we could, we tried to record as much to tape as possible. Um, sometimes right. we went full digital. It, it really didn't matter. There was no, there's no rules in recording. I, I think it's just a matter of what you have and making yep. what you have sound as good as you possibly can. Would you, um, would you say that recording to tape and that things like that are, are a dying art or yeah, is, is it kind of like vinyl where it's like, it's going to have a comeback or, or something like that, you know, or, <sighs> I mean, I'd love, I think, I think that's, there's a, there's a, like everything in the music industry these days, which we talked about briefly before we started recording was, is finances. You know, when yeah, I was totally when I was starting, you know, when 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 I on no code, Pearl Jam's no code, we use like a hundred reels of tape. Good lord. And I was the assistant, so I was running the tape log and I had to keep track of everything. And you know, that was hundred and forty bucks a reel. Now that's nineteen ninety six. The music industry had not collapsed or the revenue streams of record sales totally. had not collapsed. Um and and that was hundred and forty bucks a reel. And you know, Romans which was not made with a massive budget. I mean, we probably had to spend nine hundred, uh, six, seven, maybe six hundred on tape, as a guess. I don't know. Four reels, thinking of how long the record is. Right. You can buy a hard drive and put the whole record on it for a hundred bucks now. And <laughs> and tape is now over three hundred bucks a reel. Yeesh. And you've we, got to find a studio that has a tape machine that works. Yeah, we and, used to buy um, used reels of tape, like that were made for like um, like the Batman the animated series, like sound effects. Mm -hmm. You know, stuff like that. Like, you can just record over that, and you can get it for much yeah. cheaper than... Yeah, as long as there's no edits. Real. Yeah, totally. Yeah, as long as there's no edits. I mean, you know, and that's and, and that was a way to, you know, get around the, the what was even then somewhat expensive. But, the, you know, the price has doubled. Um, you don't... You know, the other thing in my experience is that people romanticize tape until they want you to fix something that they know you can fix in the digital realm. These are younger musicians, generally and you, speaking. You but, can. You can slice that tape, but that's a... Oof. Oh, I mean, I love yeah. slicing tape. I'm uh -huh. talking about, like, move one kick drum or... Yeah, yeah totally. Or tune this or, you know... Uh, I mean, I've, I love razor blade editing. I mean, I grew up with it. 
professionally speaking. Like, right. You know, I, I had, and I've, yeah, I mean, I love raised late editing. And that's certainly something that a lot of people, when I do it, the, the occasions where I've done tape, even in the late 90s when I would do editing, the bands I was working with were like, what are you doing? That's so scary. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, yes, I, I think that the issue really is that, you know, the equipment and, and, and budgets just aren't there. I mean, again, the revenue isn't there, so budgets shrink. And that means that hard drives, and you can keep 10 takes, and you don't have to commit to a take. Yeah. Or risk erasing it, you know. I mean, the the post that I was making today, that I made today about Oceanic, um, one of my favorite records too. I love that album. We we did a we had we had a song. We had we had a, we had the tones reel. So if you have a tones reel, there's calibration tones you have to put on the one reel so that when you go studio to studio, you can calibrate the tape machine, one k, ten k, whatever. Those 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 tones take up three minutes of tape, three three and a half minutes of tape. And on so each tape, you only have what like eighteen minutes? Sixteen and a half. Six, okay, Sixteen forty. Yeah. So, so that reel, there's 13 minutes and 13 minutes left because there's a record pad, whatever. So I'm like, you know, Aaron and Aaron, they're like, okay, we're doing the song. It's kind of long. I'm like, okay, well, I got 13 minutes on this reel. Is that enough? And they're like, oh yeah, it's like 11. I'm like, okay. So we start tracking and, you know, like a lot, like some of their songs, I mean, there's middle sections that they sort of dynamically build, especially on that record that are, they understand where it's going, but they may not have a count for the repetitions right. that that song ran that version ran long and it was amazing and they got they the tape ran out before they got to the end oh and there's nothing and i didn't have an extra re, i mean you know I, in theory if i i don't even think i had extra tape so we could have gone and tried to do a certain section to the end and then edit it on to the other one but i don't think we had the tape and so we had to erase it and that was a, you know we had no choice we had this x amount of tape and this and you know they ended up doing a great job the greats of a great version it's not but, but we all remembered that one as being something unique because I think it had a more extended middle section that they mm-hmm. customarily didn't do and they were just feeling it. Right. And, but we couldn't keep it. It was, we didn't have, I think it might have been the last song we recorded. It must have been because we didn't have extra tape available to keep the take and try and do an edit. That if, happened to all would, kinds of bands. We would have if we yeah. tried. If, and I don't, if we didn't do it, we must not have had the tape. Even bands like Van Halen, I remember that the the story that I heard was when they were recording Jump. The reason the fade out happened so fast at the end is because they literally ran out of tape like right at the last hit, and they didn't well, capture I mean, like the last hit or something. So they had to just do a super fast fade out. <laughs> now, now I'm sorry, that strikes me as absurd. I don't know. I those don't know. motherfuckers had all the money in the world. <laughs> they, those idiots couldn't have planned for bought another reel and had. I mean, that's absurd. That's I can't believe that Van Halen had to go through that kind of nonsense but whatever <laughs> oh man uh, well that that's awesome hearing your uh point of view on that um what I, I guess i also wanted to know because uh, maybe some people don't know that you did play keyboards uh, along with engineering uh minus the bear uh and there you did the first three albums is that right or four well so well i mean i was involved i was in the band through manasolosa so it was ep full length ep full length as a band member okay but you produced. I did it as not. Well, right? I did not record. I didn't record pirates. I didn't want to. Okay. So the first full length, I didn't have a hand in the recording or the mixing. Um, I mean, I suggested Steve Fisk, who is an engineer from around here, who worked with Unwound and was just kind of a is is was and is a Northwest legend. Um, and I just thought everybody in the band had recorded with me in in Kill Sadie and Botch and Sharks Keep Moving. I was like, let's you know, and I was like, I honestly. I'm sick of coaching you guys. I mean, that's kind of me being a wise ass, but I was like, you guys should, we should do something with somebody else so that you guys can work with somebody else 
and and have a different vibe. That's cool because uh, it's not necessarily like anomalous for a producer to also be in a band, but I will say that it doesn't happen all that often where you get a real deal big name record producer that also has experience hopping in a van and driving around the world and, and playing music for a living without that added um, sort of just right. weight of being the producer. And uh, I just wanted to, yeah, to, to pick your brain about the, the differences in those two and like how, how you liked one versus the other or, or whatever. Well, I mean, you know, so I went, you know, I went from high school straight to college, straight to college to my internship, my internship into my career. Um, I didn't, I didn't really, uh, fuck around like i you know I'm, I'm again i'm i keep going back to my northeast roots but there's just a certain expectation of like my parents were driving me and they didn't understand my career choice on a lot of levels and so i sort of felt as though i had to make something go and establish it and make my dad's a computer guy basically and so i you know they were just like can you make money at that and i was like yeah i'm gonna go do it i'm gonna <laughs> prove it to you and whatever you know so so i kind of had this push to try and get somewhere and I mean I still have it but I mean at that moment I was trying to prove it to myself and I didn't want to you know I needed to get somewhere in my own brain um but Minus the Bear was kind of my gap years they were they were you know I started I joined the band at 29 and they were my chance to kick back a little bit um and be creative you know I'm a decent musician I'm it's not my gift but I'm a decent musician I have a good ear and I can translate it to my fingers relatively well but you know the guys in the band were some of my closest friends. They were my drinking buddies, you know, prior to the band starting. And um, it was a chance for me to, to to live a little instead of just grind in the studio um, and, and to, again, exercise my musical muscles as opposed to my engineering muscles, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, and you know, it, it was a chance to see the world in a way that I was never anticipating, you know, uh, I wouldn't have thought I would have ended up in a band. Yeah, did you ever band, want to be a musician? 29. Yeah, did you ever want uh, to travel the world and do that? Like in I mean, a band? Or did it just kind of happen? I don't need to be on stage. I don't aspire to be on stage. Um, you know, I like being creative. I like the process of working with other people and trying ideas. And I mean, which is the job I've chosen is pretty good for that because I get new ideas every record. Um, you know, so no, it wasn't it wasn't a goal, but again, I heard these demos from Dave and Aaron and Corey and I was like, Oh, this is really good. And Jake, you know, there was no vocals on it yet, but I was like, This is awesome. And Dave's guitar playing is kind of frenetic and I was like, if I take my hat keyboard skills and play simple stuff underneath his craziness, it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> and uh, so I just threw some keyboards on and they liked what they heard and you know, they were still my they were good friends of mine, but as far as my involvement in the band and uh you know, so so it it just worked out, um, and and I'm super grateful for it. I mean, it also gave me the opportunity, and I I thought about it in this way at the time, but it gave me the uh, opportunity to uh, break free of the hardcore scene a little bit, the metal scene, like like creatively, be viewed as something other than the guy who did botch and yeah, this totally and the other. That's um, awesome. You know, because I'm before I was a hardcore kid, I was a new wave kid the Smiths and the Cure and all that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm all about it. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, as much as I love the, the aggressive music scene and, and, you know, what it's meant to me throughout my life, uh, I don't, it's, it, it can get a little monotonous just like anything can if you're just doing the same thing all the time. So, totally. you know, my Saber really afforded me the ability to spread my wings um, professionally, you know, in the engineering side because I'd meet new people and get opportunities to work with them that were not, so narrowly into the extreme music scene. Right. Um, did uh did the allure of tour ever 
make you want to uh, try your hand at live sound like as, as a front of house engineer touring or was touring just sort of like one of those things that you got sick of and wanted to stay home and do sound <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i uh i did a little bit i mean gosh like i mean i did a little bit of live sound with botch uh just when i'd get in the van to get, like sort of have a vacation and i'd mm -hmm. be like if you want me to do sound i'll do sound and so i'd do it here and there um you know it's it's it just never occurred to me you know the studio's always been my realm um, totally and uh i you know certainly and if it didn't occur to me to do it before i joined the band to go around on tour as a band member it's kind of like going from band member to live sound guys lifestyle wise is a bit of a demotion <laughs> oh you, you could say that totally <laughs> and i'm not and i'm not putting down live sound guys but if you've been on tour and you've been in on stage doing the thing to you know i mean if it was the only option i had of course i'd do it like i love i love doing audio like it you know yeah. but but it would from from the standpoint of being on tour in a bus or wherever or even in a van and and you know just just having that to look forward to i don't know if that's have enough of a hook for me to want to make that leap totally understandable well uh we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss uh warp riders at least a little bit sure uh, i know that being an audio engineer can kind of be like being a tattooer where you don't remember every single tattoo you ever did just because there's no way to remember every detail yeah. about every single thing. Uh, but I'd be interested just to hear your take. I, I could talk about it all day, but um, what just just from your point of view as an outsider, as, as probably the first outsider um, right. to work with the sword uh, in, in a studio setting at least, um, I just wanted to know what that was like because we had just come off the tails of, of the – metallica's world magnetic tour we played you know 110 yeah. shows or something like that with them the expectations were super high for the next sword album and our first two albums were done uh, were self-produced by jd yep. and then uh, engineered by brian ritchie yep. and that that was definitely you, you could argue that it was uh, just in that hard uptick of our career like the biggest records we had made for the least amount of money spent and honestly the least amount of uh, expertise uh, exacted upon them sure and which is crazy sure. because we did this massive you know worldwide arena tour on an album that we basically recorded ourselves uh, it all kind of went backwards you know and i think uh, uh, just there were so many eyes on us and everything like yes. that and uh, and and expectation is, is a musician's worst enemy and uh, so i just wanted to hear yeah kind of like what you thought about going into that project and and uh, what you, you thought about uh, getting to meet us and everything i've lost you Oh, do you have me? Okay, you're back. Oh, I'm back. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I don't know what happened, but it, you know, whether it was signal. Uh, shit happens. <clears throat> well, basically, I was just asking about uh, what what your takes were on just uh, walking into that uh, situation, yeah. not having met us before, and um, yeah, what you, what well, you thought about us. I mean, you know, obviously, when you're in, when there's label, you know, I mean, you guys, you guys probably had a lot more back conversations about sort of pressures and expectations, and whether it was management or label or you know, labels have a way of flexing their own sort of influence or whatever. But uh, no, I mean, I, you know, I feel like I've done, there's been a handful of times where I've been the, the first person, the first outside person to work with a band. And, uh, you know, my, my approach is to come in and, you know, do my thing, but also respect the fact that this is a new experience for the people I'm working with. And, and, you know, I, I, I push, but I try to make sure that the band doesn't feel like I'm taking all agency or ownership away from, you know, some people, the word producer, and I'm not saying this actually applies to you guys so much, but the word producer sometimes is 
become weighted in like a we no longer have control sort of sense and i don't like making people feel that way you know i'm not i can be bossy but it's not my way or the highway it's just like hey play it better hey we really need to consider this and then let's make a decision um but uh you know you guys had already you guys had songwriting wise it's sort of shifted a little bit uh you know into some slightly more classic rock tinges um zz top tinges or what you know whatever you want to you know, associate that with it. I mean, that's what you brought to the table and I, I loved it. And I was like, okay, let's, let's lean into this. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, what, I mean, the things I remember, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> like I remember just struggling with symbols <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and snare drums. Trivet and, uh, was, he's an incredible drummer, absolutely phenomenal drummer, but he hit the drums harder than I think I've ever seen anybody hit the drums, except for uh, Sam from Trash Talk. He hit the drums well, harder than the, Trivet, I think, but yeah. He hits the symbol. It's the thing, you know, the thing for me is, and, and this is this is a universal recording thing. I mean, Trivet might be an example of when it was a challenge, more a little more so. But drummers who hit their cymbals too hard, I mean, like, he, he hit his cymbals harder than his drums, Trivet did, in, in my, from what it, from a recording standpoint. <laughs> It was jazzy, jazzy snare, metal cymbals, <laughs> and and the problem sometimes was trying to get that snare to pop when you're not really hitting it hard, and then the cymbals are bleeding everywhere and overwhelming everything. It's like it, you know, he's got an amazing feel, and but from a recording standpoint, there were some challenges there, and mm. you know, they crept. They that you know, what I remember more than anything is during mixing, him feeling like he wasn't. He kept telling me to turn the snare up, and I kept doing it, but he kept thinking I wasn't or something. I don't know. Like there was, there was moments where I just feel like he didn't think I was on his side. And, and one, I mean, unfortunately that's the kind of stuff I really remember, uh, about that record. I mean, I remember, you know, having a blast with Brian and you and, and, you know, JD was kind of quiet that's his personality. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. I love the songs. We went, I got to play some keyboards on it, which was fun. And I didn't hack too poorly yeah too i watched you uh like paint in midi uh, so that's the only way i could put it i just I, uh, well i seen... played some real organ on that too though. you did you did but i just i had never <laughs> seen anybody bring up a midi grid and just literally like like paint drag things around it. you know it was uh it was really something it's it's something that i've, I've taken with me in my own uh, midi programming as as the years went on uh one thing i did want to say was that the sword since we were so insular before and we were in charge of our own recordings you know we would do two three four takes if we needed to and just get it right get it to where we were happy and right. and and felt that that the recording represented what we were capable of but uh recording with you was the first time that anyone had like drilled us almost like an nba coach or something like that where you're <laughs> like okay do it again and again i remember there was times when me and trivet were uh, looking at each other when you were like, you know, we were on take nine and you're like, okay, let's do a, let's do a couple more. And they were like, are you, is he serious? You know? <laughs> well, and that but, might've been the but, beginning of Trivet's frustration with me. Well, that, that but, he can get over it, but, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it made for a phenomenal record and I, I, it made me understand the importance of not falling in love with a take, you know, and, and not being afraid to just keep going and past it and just push yourself more and more. Because I, I, I really feel that um, when the sword started, I, I wasn't necessarily playing any leads. There would be a couple here. I, I did like the double lead and uh, Iron Swan and I, I, I did a couple on Winter's Wolves or here and there or whatever. But I never really ex uh, with, with Gods of the Earth, I started to explore doing crazy solos a little bit more. Uh, I unfortunately right. came up in the 90s uh, when playing guitar solos was not cool. 
Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that really um, honestly didn't do me any favors. Uh, I kind of resent <laughs> that about most grunge bands. But, uh, as you know, after you go on tour with Metallica for a year, uh, yeah, you want to yeah. play some ripping guitar solos. And uh, I came oh, home yeah, from that do. tour. Uh, and I just did a bunch of LSD uh, all summer long and just sat there and played <laughs> guitar. And I was just like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this shit. You know, and uh, that was the first time. War Riders was the first time I was like, okay, guys, I've got like 26 guitar solos uh, for yeah. this album. And they're, they're all a little different, this and that. And I, I just, th- that was uh, a lot of fun uh, running those with you. Because you drilled me, man. You were in there. I was like, okay, do it again. No, you can do a little bit better. Like, you wouldn't let me get away with, like, editing little bins here and there. You are like, no, you can play well, it. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think there's probably, t- I mean, yeah, I don't remember... T- you know, to me, that's just kind of part of the process. So I don't remember. I mean, I remember there being a lot of solos, but I don't remember like a struggle within it. And so I'm sure there was probably some editing. But yeah, you're. I don't remember how structured your solos were, but I mean, you know, I'm one of the things that when I was watching like Brendan O'Brien work with Mike McCready doing guitar solos is Mike doesn't really play the same thing twice ever. Yeah. Um, and so watching Brendan push and then be able to sculpt arrange things kind of after the fact in, in comping, um, which again, wasn't necessarily what we were doing, but you know, I've just, I've, I've, after doing it for so long, I mean, you kind of know where like the third set of, if there's a 16 bar solo, the third set of four is almost always where the, not the ideas run out, but the ideas hit a wall and you've got to like find a way to get from, you know, bar eight to bar 13. Totally. And, you know, because, like, that's, you know, the ideas are great. The ideas are great. And then there's, like, four bars of something that's almost there, and then there's the end. I know. So, yeah, with, you know. with a solo, too, you can't peak too soon. You have to really, like, choose where the climax yeah. is going to be, and you have to understand, like, where it's going to come down, even if you're improvising or if you're uh, uh, structuring one. Yeah, and that's, yeah. and that's 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 how, that's the, that's how, you know, that's how many notes you're playing. It's the notes you choose to let sustain. It's all those different mm-hmm. things. And, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I grew up in, I mean, the, the first music there's my the music my parents played for me as growing up but then the first music i actually cared about in like fifth and sixth grade was like rat and twisted sister and and that kind of stuff and rat had some actually pretty good lyrical solos you know what i mean and so it's like i learned in that sort of zone yep hair metal solos yeah, I'm, I'm older than you and then you know then you get into like the late 80s when Bon Jovi and stuff again, like very lyrical solos. I like how you say uh, that because like the it, it, like the best guitar solos in the world you can sing you know, I, th- yeah. I think that's what yeah you're trying to, to to convey. Yeah, I mean you can you can wheedle away, and there's something to be said for some moments of the wheedling, you know, like. But but if it's all just that, it, 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 I mean, for me specifically, the, the emotional resonance isn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's got to be some pacing to it, and uh, so yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's something just born of I think the music I grew up listening to, and and you know, being a pop kid amidst all the hardcore and the new wave and all that stuff, just. I don't know. I like things to, I don't know if I want them to be simple, but I like it when they give you something that you can really grab onto. Um, and so sometimes complexity for complexity's sake, it doesn't do it for me personally. Me uh, either. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, recording that record, was a lot of fun. I mean, there was, you know, some, some, some stuff to hash out in terms of interpersonal dynamics at times. And, and, you know, that was up to me to, sort of moderate as best I could. But uh, the other thing I remember about you guys, and, and, and this is sort of something that you deal with a lot of times, just talking about recording stuff, is two guitar bands when the styles of the guitar players can be quite different. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, getting them to like, ma- like Mastodon's got the same thing where it's like Bill's more of a technician and Brent's chicken picking Southern fried lunacy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, and sometimes they don't, you know, like they've got a 
they you got to put them together sometimes like they're all playing the same notes but maybe there's a picking style difference and little things like that and i think there was moments where you know in rhythm stuff specifically where we had to kind of make sure that you know you're slightly more technical thing especially with the solos like matched like the slightly groovier some some of the groovier songs on that record you know what i mean totally yeah i always felt that me and jd's guitar playing was a lot like uh, slash and izzy uh, sure. Just kind of like who 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 is who I don't know. We're probably both <laughs> at any given time. Seriously, but uh, right. that's yeah. It's it's once once you start getting down to like like particular like individual note differences and stuff like that. Yeah, that's when it can kind of sort of become a headache when you've been sitting yeah. there for eight hours editing guitars. Well, and if it's and the thing is, if it's technical music, there's a lot. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those things where if you're trying to. I don't want to strip away anybody's humanity, like their style. I mean, in terms of performance, but if there's something that's meant to like lock in, it's got to lock in. Yeah. And you know, some of that is is either straightening somebody out who's got more swing, or swinging somebody who's trying to play it straight. And you know, that's just part of the details that I think go into making something sound cohesive. Yeah. As I've gone down the path of uh, audio engineering myself, uh, it's, it's shocking when you really zoom in and, and do some surgical precision on your editing, because I, I know a lot more about myself now than I used to. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> about, sure. about when I play, like, am I, am I that ahead all the time? My God, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's made me a better musician, but not in the way that I thought it would. Well, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I hope that it hasn't put you down too far of a rabbit hole. Like one of the things that, I, I mean, I, I've got all kinds of, concepts but one of the things that i find happens a lot in the studio these days is you've got musicians whether they are familiar with daw software or not is they you know you're 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 recording something and they send they tend to point at the music instead of listening to the music uh-huh you know and it's like well you know they're like it's there i'm like what's i was like okay don't look at the screen yeah don't 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 look at the grid if it happens to have a metronome just i was like is it what do you, what is it about that that you don't like? Don't tell me to zoom in and tell you what's right or wrong about it. What is it, you know, like, I, I find that the visual aspect of music has become a crutch. And, and it's certainly something that I implement when I'm doing, like, crazy click track it, drums editing to clicks and stuff. But but I try to, I mean, I really want musicians to listen and feel, not stare and point. Right. <clears throat> and, of course, I, so I, I just hope that, you know, somewhere in there for you, you're, there's a balance there for you being free it is. It's so the old, like, the old to, adage that uh, mix with your ears, not with your eyes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah, I mean, if something's, if there's a snare that's really quiet and you can look at it and you're like, oh, the snare's really quiet, it's like, okay, well, let me try and find a way to fix that snare from being really quiet. But if something's pushing or pulling, you know, I try I try to figure out what it is that makes it feel wrong instead of zooming in to, to confirm what uh-huh. makes it feel wrong. But, you know, that's, that might be a pipe dream to make, to ask modern musicians to, listen and i mean to, to focus more on their ears than on their eyes but when so many people are home recording that's just what they're gonna do <laughs> totally and uh speaking of uh, it's a ball buster thing i suppose uh, no no but for real but but speaking of home recording uh in in this unprecedented time which is now i guess a precedented time uh at, at this point well you've been doing a lot more mixing i guess uh, of people's home recorded yeah. projects and, and things like that is that basically been your main gig since since the rona uh, hit us well yeah and i mean you know i, I had a uh, Yes. I mean, I had my, my studio red room for a long time and I closed it at the end of 2017 and built a mix room in my house. Um, so, you know, I haven't stopped recording, but I've, uh, done less of it because I, in order to keep red room afloat, I was sort of, uh, maybe burning the candle at both ends a little bit. Um, taking on stuff that caused me to get a little burnt. Um, 
so you know but the and so i've done a lot of mixing i've kind of had one recording project that i've done and i got a few that got pushed off that hopefully i'll do next year but uh but yeah i mean you know people have the resources obviously you being a prime example musicians have the resources to make good recordings at home but sometimes mixing there's so much trial and error in mixing that that yeah you know experience comes with those mistakes and god knows i've made tons of them so but you know if you've got small flaws in a recording a, a, a good mix person can can really amplify all the good stuff and just mitigate the bad stuff in whatever small ways are there and and do it quicker than maybe you could if you were just banging your head against the wall in maybe a less than optimal listening environment or just you don't have a sense of what the cause of the problem and you know someone may not know what the cause of the issue is and yeah absolutely somebody who's got yeah. experience might be like oh well okay it's this so if i fix this this will now become more audible and mm -hmm. these these issues might get resolved or whatever so yeah my, my um, downfall yeah, is always like eq mixing. yeah it's just like knowing what frequencies produce what effects and things like that and and yeah it's yep. uh, it's it's a steep learning curve, but I've found that it's better for me. It's a it's a better learning experience if I just commit to the recording and just put it out, yep. and then just deal, just move on. You know what I mean? You can sit there and try to perfect one thing forever and ever and ever, but at the end of the day, like most people, probably aren't going to understand even what you don't like about it. So sure, <laughs> it's just unless, it's just, unless every, you decide to, to notify them. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I hate about this. Did you notice? Oh, you didn't. Well, now you know what I hate about it. Right. And now I've ruined your your perspective on the song, <laughs> or the you know, whatever. So yeah, I mean it's you know obsessing is something I've gotten good at doing less of, um, you know. But uh, but that's I think because I can solve stuff quicker without having to scratch my head as much. Totally. Can you, you believe know? it's been ten years since Warp Riders? Oh man, I, I I can't. Well, I mean this whole discography thing. I mean you know that I've been doing on Instagram. It's like I'm at, I'm in two thousand two. Oof. And oh my God. and. So it's just it's just the whole thing is interesting and it's and it's you know obviously taking t having work taken away from us our yeah. touring and you know like all uh -huh. these things taken away from us has made me appreciate everything and then sort of going through this experience of posting pictures and thinking of some of the memories I have it's it's uh and just realizing how long ago it actually was yeah <clears throat> it's it's been good for me uh, to, to acknowledge or, or to just, to, I don't know, just to look at the arc, you know? Uh -huh. Um, because I think for a few years I was fried and, 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 uh, maybe not as appreciative of everything. Um, and there's a lot of backstory as to what goes into that, but, you know, health issues within my, my, with my partner, my girlfriend, and, uh, that really made a couple of years tough. And, um, I just didn't have the, perspective i do now and, and corona only amplifies it to, to know what i had and what i do have and and appreciate it more than maybe i was a couple years ago when i was hitting a wall <laughs> totally i mean it's it, it, when, when you're in it when you're in the grind and just going and going and going it's it's hard to keep track of how much time has passed and uh, so, yes. and, and for those that don't know, uh, Matt Bayless has been posting his entire discography on his uh, Instagram page. You didn't even have an Instagram for uh, until you decided to do this project, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It basically, I mean, my my friends in He Who's Oxes Gord started the Matt Bayless isn't on Instagram hashtag like a few years ago when I was mixing <laughs> for them, and so that's why it's on there because I just think it's funny. Because for years I wasn't, and you actually could search it before I was posting, and you would find a mishmash of Seattle bands that I'd worked with yeah. with that hashtag making fun of me for not being on Instagram. That's funny. But, uh, uh, but and I haven't, it. yeah, I don't post a lot of personal stuff. It's work. It, you know, it's, 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 it's my work output and it's, it's an outlet for that. I don't, I don't need to take pictures of my 
whatever I cooked that day. And oh, totally. But but it is it is still very it. personal though because it's uh, these little stories that people never get, and especially the the kinds of bands that we all worked with and everything. There's not documentaries about every single one. There's not like super no. detailed Wikipedia pages. A lot, and most of it uh, happened before social media. So even like in the early right. 2000s late 90s all that whole area um is, is kind of a dark zone for many people that are into music from this so it's it's really cool to see you uh kind of shine some light on that and uh even when you don't have a whole lot to say about the session even then it's like hey, it must have been smooth sailing because i don't remember anything uh right <laughs> you know well and yeah, there's still there's to me you know there's story yeah and i mean i'm sure there's i mean i've you know one of the problems or problems but one of the realities of of being in my position is as someone who's able to be in the room on pearl jam records or Soundgarden records or whatever, you know, or, uh, you know, is like not all of it is meant to be shared, you know, and totally. not because it re- sometimes it reflects poorly on me because maybe I got into it with somebody and I overreacted or, or somebody was, you know, like, I mean, there's, there's always tense moments in the studio and you, you know, they're not all meant to be broadcast. They yep. don't, they're not all, it, there's a, there's a, there's a code there, especially when you're dealing with the huge rock star bands right. that you just, you don't talk about that stuff. So I try to find a story that ap- applies more to recording and kind of be like, oh, well, this was an element of this that I remember that was either cool or a challenge or, or something. But, you know, whether Brent from Mastodon wanted to pile drive me one day because I made him play a guitar solo too many times, like <laughs> uh, that, which, which did happen. Well, I mean, not the pile driving, but, but the frustration with me did happen. Yeah. Um, and it was, and it was deserved because I was kind of being a dick. I was challenging him in a way that probably wasn't as awesome as it could have been. And I owned it very quickly and we made, two more records after that encounter. So, you know, we worked it out, um, which is part of why that story isn't something that's just constantly discussed because it was, I owned it and, and we moved <laughs> forward and got to make Leviathan and Blood Mountain after that. That's incredible. So, you know, but yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun to think back and remember, try to, you know, remember, see what jumps out to me in, yeah. in terms of my memories on these projects. That's incredible. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today and, and uh, for all the people out there that, that want to know more about everything you've done. You've done so many records. It's yeah, absolutely incredible. And uh, I can't wait to, to just see what happens when we get through all of this. Uh, Fuck, man. How, I, however, can't, I can't. <laughs> however that is. <laughs> I can't wait to just go sit somewhere outside with friends and hang out. Yeah. Yeah, you, know. you, you and me. I mean, I, some some parts of this country are still doing that. Seattle's fairly uh, uptight about all that stuff. So Different it's, story it's, up there. Yeah, it's it, sure. there's yeah every little part of the country is handling it differently. But generally speaking, up here we're all pretty damn type A and cautious, and so it's yeah. there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of mayhem to be had up here. Right. Right. So. Well, well, thanks, Matt, and uh, Thank I you, hope Kyle. you take care of yourself. And uh, yeah, you, there, you, you know, if there's anything you ever need from me, I'm just a phone call away. So, <laughs> well, same here. If for some reason, you need a an extra ear on a mix or something, and you want a perspective, just let me know. Hey, you never know. All right. So. Well, thanks, bud. We'll talk soon. Okay. Yep. Take Bye. care. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning into the Highway this week. A big shout out to Reverend Guitars, Railhammer Pickups, and Earthquaker Devices. If you liked what you heard, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go one step further, you can support us on Patreon at the Highway with Kyle Shutt. For a few bucks a month, you can help us keep this party going, get early access to next week's episode, and even get yourself a shout out.